said. Jesus prayed to go away to be with the Father so that he could say, I know the Father, I know what he's saying, and I know what he's doing. And I want us to be a church, a house, and a people in 2024 when there's a hundred different things that are going to be saying, this is what you should believe, this is what you should think, this is how you should feel, that we would only be emulating and responding in the things that we know that we see the Father doing and saying, and where is he at work, and how can we join him? And so prayer is going to be absolutely foundational to how we walk through that year. And so we actually, we, we have some, in our series of Sundays, we're going to come back and revisit prayer. Um, and so we are wanting to make a commitment to um, not do what we often do. And we say, I have a new value. This is not a new value. This is an ancient value. And this is something that we are being called back to, to redig. Um, but this week, I want to talk about a call to prayer in that prayer series. And I mentioned that we would be talking about this at some point. And this is um, what to do with unanswered prayers. And so I want you to join me this morning in, in a garden called Gethsemane. It's Mark 14, 36, and it's Jesus praying before he's crucified. And he's asking God to release him from the assignment that he has been given. And, uh, and he says this, Abba, Father. Everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And in this garden, in this long night of being alone, Jesus is crying out. He's declaring, Father, I know that everything is possible for you, but I'm asking you to do something. And as he prayed through the night, it says that he was in anguish and he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood that were falling to the ground. He prayed alone with intensity, silent night, calling out to God who he knew was capable of doing anything to the point where he was sweating as it just dripped off of his body. God, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. It's moments like that where we look at Jesus' life that I don't think that he would agree with the modern poet and lyricist Garth Brooks, who said, <laughs> who, did I, who did I get over there? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Uh, remember when you're talking to the man upstairs and just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care Because some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. That is the man who sold more albums than I believe Michael Jackson and the Beatles. Um, uh, anyway, so <laughs> you and I read that and, and we know that it's not that simple. There are definitely prayers that I can look back on in my life and I'm very thankful that God didn't move <laughs> I'm thankful that God didn't move on my behalf and do what I wanted the way that I wanted. And I have to admit that his goodness and his wisdom have led me to this place way better than I ever could have. But often when I think back across my prayer life's journey, the moments that rise to the surface, maybe much like you, it's the moments that rise to the surface of the disappointment the disillusionment, the confusion, the frustration of those times that God didn't come through. 
And I can't just pack it in a simple lyric like Garth Brooks and go, oh, I thank God for unanswered prayers because I don't think Jesus would say, I thank God for unanswered prayers as he sweats like blood off of his body, begging a God who is capable to intervene and is met with a no. What do we do when passionate prayer is seemingly met by silence? When we cry out to a God who can do all things, but he doesn't move, and he didn't intervene, or he didn't speak, what do we do with these unanswered prayers? I want you to hold that thought for a moment, and I want to, instead, I want to share a brief testimony with you. This was written out by, um, by someone on our leadership council and shared with us uh, as we've been practicing corporate prayer, as you, as you guys look around at these boards that you have shared prayers corporately, um, publicly that you've shared, and we've spent the last, the second half of this month, or the first half of this month, just going through these prayer stations and putting these prayers on the board. In the second half of the month, we've committed publicly to, to pray corporately for one another, carrying one another's burdens as scripture instructs us to do. And it's been a, such a powerful time. This testimony came back to us. Last week, we got a call from one of my husband's partners from work and a close friend of his, letting us know that his son had been in a severe car accident and was life-flighted to Asante. He was in ICU, and although he was stable with the help of many machines, there was no sign of brain activity. On the brain scale of 1 to 15, 3 is brain dead, and his son was a 4. The prognosis was very grim as we left that night. We kept praying and checking in. Nothing was changing. After several days, they tried to reduce the sedation to see if he would wake up, and nothing was happening. The only thing keeping them from giving up hope was some reflex responses to stimulation. Thursday night... Uh, last Thursday night, we had a bite in here in our worship night. The Thursday night before, our leadership council meets once a month to pray over the finances, to make decisions about the church. And we came, after our meeting, or, or as part of our meeting, we came down into this room and, and we just spent time praying over each one of these boards that you guys have, have put prayers on. So our leadership council was in here praying for you guys. And she said, Thursday night is the leadership meeting. After Ryan said that we would be walking and praying as a family on Sunday, I added this situation to, the, to give us this day our daily bread. And so she put it on that board over there. Uh, and I told his dad and assured him that we were still praying, but nothing had changed all weekend. Sunday morning, people gathered around the board and prayed and were praying for the prayer requests on the board. And I took a picture of it, that group of people and sent it to his father. I sent it to his family and I told them we were praying for his son collectively and specifically for his brain to reconnect, his functions to be restored and his life to be revived. They were thankful for the support, but had still seen no improvement. That was Sunday, but Monday his eyes flittered and Tuesday a slight bit more movement and Wednesday he woke up on his own knowing his name and where he was. It is a total and complete miracle. You go ahead. You can clap. It's, it's awesome. I feel overwhelmed. This testimony goes on to say, I feel overwhelmed that people prayed for this young man. He's 23 and he does not know Jesus himself. He struggled the last several years and had a broken relationship with his family. There is opportunity now for reconciliation and relational healing and a heart more open to God than ever before. It make, yes. It, it makes me excited to think of the testimonies to come out of this month of prayer and our posture of seeking God in this way. 
Such a powerful testimony, such a neat testimony, such a reminder for us. As we hear testimonies like this, it should stir our faith and it should stir our desire to pray in agreement for God to move and that we would get excited about these things that happen. And that's what we should be doing, unless you're like me. Um, I've become the younger, older brother from the prodigal story. And sometimes because of what we've walked through, when I hear a testimony like this, I take that posture of the older brother who, that prodigal story of a young brother who goes away and squanders his family's wealth and comes back and the father runs out to greet the son and brings him into the house and says, let's throw a party on his behalf. There was an older brother in that story who was like, hey, what about me? I've been here the whole time serving you faithfully. And because of his attitude and his stance, he was unable to see the father's love firsthand. And he was unable to celebrate the miracle of his brother being restored to the family and in some ways being brought back to life. He was so caught in his own story and disappointment that he is unable to enter into that celebration. And I hope <laughs> that I'm not the only one who hears testimonies and thinks, why them and not us, God? Where were you when our family needed a miracle? And it's moments like that where I have a choice. Obviously, I have a choice to hold on to hope or to move into disappointment. And that's been a lot of my journey for the last two years. And I'm in a good place, but I want to be honest with you about how it feels to be trying to celebrate, telling people, pray for miracles and then celebrate miracles while also being like, God, where were you? And I feel the enemy shouting at me in those moments and I think you might too. And there's a story in the Old Testament where Elijah was standing with the prophets of Baal and he had challenged them to say, uh, you know, let's have, a, let's have a, sh a showdown between our gods and you call out to your God and see if he'll pour fire out on your altar and I'll call out to my God. And they're going through all of their stuff to try to ritualistically get their God to move. And Elijah says to them, shout louder. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. And I know Elijah was doing that as a representative of God, but so often it's the enemy who's shouting that to me to say that a God, do not, a God that doesn't hear you or is powerless in the face of your request is not a God worth worshiping or following. Shout louder. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Perhaps he was busy when you needed him. Perhaps he's traveling or maybe he's just sleeping and must be awakened. And I've learned firsthand how easy it is to let unanswered prayers and the mystery of why become an accusation against God rather than an invitation into the deeper places of faith. Where God doesn't have to move the way that I want, when I want. And places where sometimes darkness win and sometimes death has its day. Why didn't God heal? Why hasn't God removed your temptation that you've begged him to remove? Why hasn't he straightened out your mind? Why hasn't he straightened out your heart? 
Why hasn't he restored your family or brought that prodigal home? Why hasn't he healed your marriage or why didn't he heal your marriage? Why hasn't he brought you the one that you've been waiting for? Why doesn't God intervene? What are we to do with unanswered prayers? These unanswered prayers that can clog the arteries of our spiritual hearts and eventually close off the blood flow entirely. God, why have you moved for some prayers and not for others? Why do you answer prayers for someone that I barely know, but not my own brother? If everything is possible for you, then why? As we've been reading the book, Praying Like Monks, if you haven't read it, read it, I strongly encourage you to read it. We read it together in October, and this month we're reading Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, both of those books extremely important for us as we walk into 2024. And the author of, of Praying Like Monks, Tyler Stanton, says this, I know the power of God and the silence of God. And sometimes I think I'd handle the silence better if power was never on the table. A God with a personality and a will is so unpredictable. Maybe it would be easier if we had a God who worked like an operating system designed to deliver predictable results based on the buttons that we push. But that's not the God revealed on the pages of scripture. It's not the God revealed in Jesus. It's not the God I've walked with all these years. And this is part of chapter nine. And I've told you guys that uh, one of the reasons I love this book is one, it's just rekindled a heart, I think corporately and communally for us to be people of prayer. But chapter nine specifically brought me back a year plus ago when I read this book or actually listened to it in my backyard in the corner of my yard where no one could see me over the hill, um, cutting back blackberry bushes that really didn't matter or need to be cut back. But I sat out there as I listened to chapter nine and just wept and cut back stupid blackberry bushes as this book was able to articulate so much of what I had been feeling and sensing and wanting to say out loud, but wasn't sure how to say it. And in the book, he talks about Acts chapter 12, and it's the story of the early church, this vibrant community of followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 12, there's this little story. And it says this, about the time King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. So some of the followers of Jesus were arrested. He was intending to persecute them. He had James, one of the core disciples, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Acts chapter 12, verse one through three. But as the story goes on, the church gathers together in prayer and they pray for Peter and as that night goes on, that angel, an angel shows up to Peter and releases him from his bondages. And he walks him out of this prison and he delivers him to this all night prayer meeting where people are praying. And Peter is miraculously rescued. And we go, oh, this is so amazing. But we miss that little bit about James, don't we? Why God? Why let James die if you can send an angel to walk Peter out to safety? And for us, why, God, fill in the blank of your own life? And the honest answer 
as he talks about in chapter nine, is that we don't know. And in reality, that is the only response that I think can lead us back to a healthy relationship with the Lord. And I want to read a longer, a longer bit from the book. This is in chapter nine of the book, and it's a story of Jenna. And um, for those of you that read it, you'll recognize this story and how powerful it was. If you haven't, again, it's great. It's a great book. Read it. Um, but Jenna's sister-in-law was battling infertility and then cervical cancer. And then she um, was able to beat the cancer. And then she was able to get pregnant. And then the cervical cancer came back and a tumor actually grew behind the child that was in her stomach. And so they couldn't see it because the life and the death were mixed together in her womb. And, and so as she gave birth, she was, they discovered that the cancer had come back and there was nothing that they could do. And she died. And this is the story of Jenna and the author. They were just talking through this process and what, what her journey was like with that kind of grief and pain. And he said this, Jenna sat in her grief counselor's office. She was at her weekly appointment trying to sift through the mess that unanswered prayer had dumped in her lap. She said it was a question, not an answer that served as her subtle hinge point between the pain that destroys and the pain that transforms. The counselor gently asked her, what reason could God give you? What I mean is, what could God say to you, Jenna, that would justify Helen's death? Is there any reason that he could offer for not healing her, that you would find satisfactory, any answer that would make her loss okay? And the truth is, she said, there was nothing. And that realization left me with a choice to make. I could embrace mystery or run from it. Could I make peace with not knowing why my prayers weren't answered or would this be the experience I define God by? The one experience that overwhelms all the others that I'd had along the way. Could I continue to trust God without having answers and reasons we are all going to face painful disappointment and dis sorry disorientation at some point. And the challenging invitation is to trust even in the darkness. When Jenna stepped back into her apartment after Helen's death, the story she had built her life on came tumbling down like a house of cards. The way she described it then was like this. Either God is not powerful enough or God is not good enough. And honestly, folks, that's exactly where I found myself. And I want you to know it's okay to be there. It's just not okay for us to live there and set up our life in that place. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. And it wasn't the end of my story, but it's very real to say, God, you either weren't powerful enough or you weren't good enough. And months later, after wandering in the dark, Seething in the church pew, grieving the loss of a version of herself she missed and couldn't get back, another option finally opened to her. In that grief counselor's office that day, I made my decision. I chose trust. Not a trust that God wills, willed Helen's cancer or death, but a trust that God is good 
that God is present in our suffering and that God will make all things new. Parker Palmer says this in a hidden wholeness, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are, the few, these are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without hope and faith and love. And praying like monks goes on to say this, all the biblical highlights, the moments of God's glorious interventions were preceded by someone choosing trust. The subtext behind every miracle, the soundtrack beneath the life of every saint is a defiant and courageous choice in the face of the dark experiences of God, of God's absence and silence. I choose trust. Choosing trust looks like a church who lost James, even though presumably they did the same thing that they did for Peter. They called an all-night prayer meeting for James and found out that he had been killed. And then Peter's arrested and they choose what? Let's pray again. That is trust in the face of silence and disappointment. A church who lost James and still prayed for Peter. A disciple who couldn't cast out the demon, praying later in their ministry, praying for a paralyzed man to rise up and walk. A pastor who lost his brother, praying for a young man in a car accident. A mom whose child has been wayward for 20 years, choosing to pray for one more year. A life destroyed by divorce, praying for marriages to be made whole. A mourner praying for resurrection life to be seen in others. You see, the way back for me wasn't to avoid the garden of Gethsemane, the silent place, the place of weeping. It was to join Jesus there. Or maybe it was to let Jesus join me there. As we said, Jesus praying, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke twenty two forty four. and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. We pray to a God who knows the pain of unanswered prayers. We have to let that blow our mind a little bit. We pray to a God who knows the pain of unanswered prayers. And that's what I've needed the last couple years. Not to figure it out theologically, although I've tried. And not to crack the code and come up with some four-step formula that I can share with everybody else for victorious prayer. And definitely not to invite religion to trap me in a denial of my doubt. I needed a God who knows what it feels like to kneel and be met by silence. 
for me. That's on a hospital floor watching my brother die. Knowing that the prayers of the family and the friends that are going up around the city, knowing the two powerful women that are in the hallway interceding, knowing his children were crying out to God for their dad, feeling like I'm being sent into this place as a man of God, surely if God is going to listen to anyone, it's going to be him. Watching the doctors and the nurses fight valiantly and while I begged, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from us. Having to sit in that room as Deanna came in and watching her entire world and future shatter, the incomprehensible pain that she felt, the incomprehensible pain that her children would feel, it was infinitely greater than even what I was feeling. The wound that they now carry and to say, God, you could have stopped this. How could you let this happen? Where were you in our moment of greatest need? What about our devotion? What about our prayers? What about the prayers of this community of people around us? Where are you? Where were you? In my healing journey, like I said, I didn't need a God to be understood. I needed a God who had been in that garden of silent nights and unanswered prayers himself who entered into my world and my pain that brings me back to trust and to hope, not for perfection or ease or platitudes that fall short, but for answers yet known, for glory yet revealed, and for his will not yet done. Why? How? I don't know. But I choose to trust Jesus who walked among us, who met us, who intervened, who felt the silence of God. And the beautiful irony of this story for me is that today when I'm on my knees in prayer, I'm on that hospital floor again. It has become my Gethsemane, which means the oil press, where olives are crushed to introduce or to produce new oil. It's my Gethsemane, it's my secret place. It's my silent night. It's the most painful and sacred space that exists in my life and a place where I can question and I can contend, where I can weep and I can worship, where I can wait and I can wonder. Because right beside me is the one who knows the crushing weight of unanswered prayer. The one beside me is the one who knows that sometimes evil and death and disease and disease and darkness and sin win and they have their day and we are left with the pieces. My prayer wasn't answered, so I hold on believing it is being answered. Not my will, but your will be done. What happened to Jeff was not God's will, so we know, I know, that his will is still to be seen. And what is his will? That I will see life from death. I will see redemption for our loss and beauty from ashes. I will see the faithfulness of God on display through this. He will not waste our pain. And whatever the enemy has intended for harm, and he did do great harm.
I will see it turned for good and for his glory. God didn't do this. God didn't cause this. Life did this. Evil did this. Sickness did this. Things that Jesus is actively opposing on earth and came to remove, first spiritually and then in reality. And he is not done. His will for redemption and renewal of all things is still unfolding and his glory is being revealed. And if I can endure the garden, I get to be here when the glory of redemption for those dark nights of our souls and our stories is revealed. I believe Psalm 27, 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Um, I think maybe I'll have the worship team come up. There's no transitions here. Oh, there's a transition. I just want to close with this. As we look at prayer, I want us to remember that prayer is not magic. We cannot summon God as though he were a genie waiting to grant our wishes without regard for our circumstances or for the consequences. And I want us to remember that prayer is not a guarantee against suffering in this life. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus told us in John 16. And Peter told us in his letter, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may over, be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Just one last quote I want to read you guys as we transition into a time maybe of just meditation, of silence of worship, if you'd like to take communion, if you'd like to find a place to kneel that just represents your Gethsemane, your garden, your dark night, that silent place that you would just kneel and say, Jesus, I recognize that you're a God who knows the pain of unanswered prayers. You're a God who has spent nights like this. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And I don't have to know every answer and I may never know the answer. But I choose to trust a God who is not aloof, who is not far off, but has been in the darkest of nights himself. And we can invite him into that place. This last quote from the book says this, God works slowly out of compassion, not apathy. I know that God puts up with a ton of corruption and his slow, loving way of redemption asks of us patience and endurance in suffering. I know that when I read Acts, I see seasoned, resilient faith, a praying people who dance with God through miracles and bear with God through mystery. 
Let me read that again. I know that when I read Acts, I see a seasoned, resilient faith. A praying people who dance with God through miracles and bear with God through mystery. I testify that I can come back to this place and hear a testimony like we read today. And instead of it being an accusation against God like it might have been months ago, it can be a place of saying, I want to celebrate with you in miracles. And I want to meet with you in mystery. Lost in the background of the action sequences and miraculous montages of Acts is this, a community that gathered to pray even after they had tried it once before only to watch darkness win, at least from their point of view. They kept on praying in the face of unanswered prayer. They persisted in prayer. Where does that come from? Only from the belief that God is bottling up my tears and saving them right next to my prayers. That both our tears and our prayers are key ingredients in the recipe of redemption. And that he loves me too much to let either go to waste. God, I ask that our most challenging places would become our most sacred places. I ask that we would not build a faith that has to avoid places where we feel or seen, sense or believe that you didn't show up. That those places would become our gardens that we kneel in, that we worship in, that we pray in. They would become our places of wonder and mystery and doubt and belief. But God, let us not build a faith that avoids the hardest of places because that is where you meet with us. I thank you that you are a God who hears us. And your silence is not to be mistaken with distance. That you're with us in the midst of the night. And that we will see your goodness. We will see your glory. And we hold on to hope. Let us be a resilient people who pray when we doubt, who pray when we hurt, who pray because it's what trust looks like even when we don't have it all figured out. We thank you, Lord. Amen. There's space for you here. There's space for you to, to kneel. There's space for you to take communion. There's space for you to worship. We usually wrap up about 11.40, 11.45. And so before you go get your kids or do any of that, Let's take advantage of this space and time to worship, to respond, to be silent, to, as I said, take communion. If you would like to, you're welcome to walk through the prayer stations around the Lord's Prayer. If you would like to talk and hang out and make connections, you're welcome to, but let's please do that in the lobby. I would ask that you don't pick up your kids yet, though, because they're still in the midst of classes. This time is still going. Their time is still going. This is sacred space set apart for him. Let's take advantage of it. Amen. Love you guys so much.